It occurred to me, I othered Chris Rock. I kind of wrote him off. I didn't spend time getting into to Chris's space because it's he's not his comedy's not been one of my favorites. Um, it's, it's straight up the only Chris Rock joke that I know is I'll never hit a woman. I would never hit a woman, but I will shake the shit out of her. I I was more behind the idea that maybe comedy needs to to have a reckoning. Maybe we, we maybe it's we're long overdue for recognizing the role. Comedy has been very provocative and told us the truth and, and hold up a mirror in a way that we can laugh, but also be triggered to think differently. And it's powerful. Humor is powerful and they can cut and bite through a lot of the noise. And we can still ele elevate the craft. Yes. Such that we're not purposely trying to attack anybody. That we can still be commenting on and, and, and being provocative and evoking a sense of possibility and change in humanity in a funny way. And we can still be raunchy as hell, yeah. and, but, but still with a different level of humanity. culture keepers hope you had a good chuckle at some point today this is deborah ashe with you are a culture keeper we're back with adrian gunn for episode two unpacking the oscars so what do you all think is it time for comedy to upgrade yes to being raunchy yes to crying with laughter but do we need to roast people without their consent and why in particular are we roasting black women oh my goodness so here's a little more about what's on the menu today. We are definitely talking about the Oscars, but we're also gonna unpack a little bit about the origins of this concept of whiteness and race as a social construct. Meaning, is it possible that the concept of race was invented in order to serve colonizers? Yep. So how can we vision something different? Uh, Adrian also talks about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs and how it's actually upside down and omitted the importance of community. Maslow's hierarchy of human needs has actually been a pillar of the psychology movement and human development movement, but it was developed by the Blackfoot Nation and there are lots of flaws in Maslow's interpretation of it. We also define cognitive dissonance, which can be very problematic and contribute to racism and also help us unpack racism and its origins so that we can create something different, so that we can create harmony. We also talk about how Hollywood is selling this idea of monogamy when many of their famous couples are actually polyamorous. We are going to share some comics that we love that are hilarious, but have elevated their humor beyond this roasting culture BS that we hear all too often that contributed to the Oscars going haywire. In today's conversation, Adrian also brings up a blues artist, Daryl Davis, who is a black man who befriended several members of the KKK over the course of 30 years thus opening their minds and their hearts. And due to Mr. Davis's influence, 200 Klansmen have given up their robes. Um, in the show notes, I'm going to put an article in there uh, by NPR, National Public Radio, about that story. I wanna take a moment to highlight Adrian Gunn, our guest today, before we go into this episode. First off, check out the previous episode, number 15, Unpacking the Oscars, in which Adrian reads her famous post that inspired me to reach out and invite her onto this show. She reads it at the end of the episode and it's really amazing. Also check out her podcast, From the Hip. I think I've listened to four episodes over the past week, totally hooked. She also has that on YouTube. All of that information is in the show notes. Check out her website, adriannegunn.com for coaching and her Changing Hearts and Minds workshops for businesses. And finally, at Adriesque is her handle for all videos on Facebook and social media, etc. 
Again, all of this is in the show notes. Please visit us on youareaculturekeeper.com or youareaculturekeeper at Instagram. And you still have a few more days to get that early bird discount on the Phoenix Rising event this June in California. Add your promo code YAACK for a discount. That's short for You Are a Culture Keeper. All of that is going to be in the show notes. And here we go with Adrian Gunn. We have a responsibility for who we're being and how we show up in every moment. 100%. I love that you're reflecting on what it meant to you because I started to do that too because I was like, how come I cannot put this down? I mean, yeah. I've been obsessing about this. Yes. And I was like, what is that? And there was a lot of things that came up for me. One is around how do I show up as an ally? And I just felt a real responsibility and a real desire to show up as an ally to black women, Mm -hmm. especially watching a lot of white women online saying things that were really problematic and didn't really, to me, have any backstory around Jada around Chris around Will and didn't have any backstory around the social dynamics of systemic racism and fawning mm-hmm. and appeasement culture and the things that you spoke about so eloquently and another piece that really came up for me is around being a young woman being a girl being a teenager and not being protected by some of the men in my life yes and so i really felt there was something that the intent, there was an element of honor in the intent mm-hmm. around Will protecting his partner. Yeah. And then there's some problematic things around how that was, you know, displayed and yeah. how he spoke, you know, keep your hands or keep your, keep my wife's name out your mouth, you mm-hmm. know, um, there's a whole thing around unpacking ownership when it comes to uh, marriage. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, there's just so much, right? Dozens of layers here. Yeah, and the people who are seeing potentially the dynamic of a narcissistic relationship. And right. I, in in healing paths, I recognize that narcissism is one expression of trauma, which is related to being cut off from your emotions, right? Mm-hmm. And. Yeah, that dynamic of whether Jada even needed him to get up, whether that was beyond, like, what's their dynamic where that's coming up? The things that people could talk about in this, okay, so we're talking about, okay, are Will and Jada in an open relationship? I've thought so for over a decade because I've heard rumors from when I lived in Vegas and people come to town and sometimes Vegas people know some things. Mm-hmm. We share some stories and, you know, there are NDAs that that, <laughs> that people have signed. But yeah, so this is, this is about marriage and ownership and open relationship and emasculation and masculinity. And this is about, is violence ever necessary or appropriate? Uh, does any one black person represent the whole community? We're talking about that. We're talking about the fact that everybody was in the room also froze. They had a trauma response and Chris had a freezing trauma response. And just the things that we can talk about in this one instance, recognizing how everyone's responses, like this one incident and how we respond to it are, are such clearly articulating who we are and where we are and what we're reckoning with right now. Yeah. Uh, the battle around political correctness and wokeness and cancel culture and all these things about whether words actually mean what they mean. Why are we changing language? And (laughs) something I thought of that probably no other human has said, so is exclusive for you. Um, (laughs) Do you know actually how unremarkable it is for a black woman to have a shaved head? or very, very closely, like like short as hell hair. Mm. The idea that some people are like, oh, G.I. Jane, that was a compliment. It's about empowerment. First of all, is that an empowering movie? I watched it. I misremembered that she was raped and tortured, but she was just tortured. She was tortured in it, and then she shaves her hair off, and these things happen. It's off. It's horrifyingly violent to her in this movie. And then I'm like, well, wait a second. Black women, it's very common for black women to have shaved heads or such closely, tightly buzzed haircuts all over the globe. People yeah. that we would describe as black and they would describe themselves as however they describe themselves because people don't call themselves black in other places. They have their own names for who they are. Uh, 
is ridiculously common. You should look at photos from all of the places the people we would describe as black are from. It is a very common thing to have shaved head or short hair. And, and that equals so many descriptions, beautiful and entire spectrum. But everywhere else, all of the other cultures, when they shave off their hair, it's like cancer, it's militant, it's, you know, like Sinead O'Connor and Demi Moore. It was like a huge statement. It's actually not a particularly large statement for our, our culture. But if you're centering cultures wherein shaving your head is not common to even like make your joke, that's kind of odd and weird too, I find. Yeah. You know, and as you were speaking, I had to look up the statistic. Um, and there's so much beauty, you know, with the very short hairstyles in many Black women. And then going back to, I'm saying two things at once here, going back to your previous conversation around the torture that your hair went through and how that's such a common experience for young Black women. Um the statistic is 47.6% of Black women respondents said that they had experienced hair loss. So alopecia in the, that community in particular is very high. Mm -hmm. And so that's just, it's so problematic. And Jada has been open about this experience since 2018. Right. So I'm sorry. The idea that Chris didn't have an opportunity to know about that. I just want to say that out loud. It's kind of BS. The other thing that's really fascinating is, is this level of cognitive dissonance that exists where people are confused. Like Chris has daughters. He made a documentary about black hair because his daughter said, I don't have good hair. And then he went and he made an entire, I haven't seen it. I've yeah. not seen it, but he made an entire documentary about what it, what hair means in the black community and the black culture. And when we think about context is interesting and important. Thank you. The same person who made that documentary can get on a stage and whatever his internal representation of his responsibility on that stage on that night with that audience, he may not have access to the part of his life where he knows that he's got a daughter and this is inappropriate. He might just be focusing on what are they going to relate to? And what he decided they're going to relate to is a joke about a movie that's like from 1997. Mm -hmm. Not even current. Not even current. He didn't even like, I don't know her name though. This is probably why not. He didn't even reference Charlize Theron in the Mad Max movie, like Fury Road. You know, Fury Road sequel would have been a more recent joke that equals, I'm going to compare this black woman to the bald white lady mm. who's fierce. It's a very interesting thing of like, he's scanning his Rolodex of the audience and he's deciding what will these people relate to they will relate to a movie with Demi Moore in it with, with shaved hair is what he decides. And he has no access in that context when he moves in space to recognize. Similar when Will is embodying. It's very interesting. I mentioned this. So Will Smith usually gets to play somebody who's similar enough to himself. Those are usually his roles. He doesn't have to embody another person. So he's done Six Degrees of Separation was, was one of his first movies. He's done Ali. And then King Richard are these three movies where he had to be someone else. And he wrote in his book that he's not, he's not particularly good at shaking off that character. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he still used method acting, but he did originally. And he nearly lost his Fresh Prince show because he couldn't remember how to be Will Smith and he couldn't remember how to be the Fresh Prince. The Fresh Prince was based on him, right? So he's also admitted on the Red Table Talks, Jada's show, when he was interviewing the Williams sisters, that the thing he most took home from playing Richard Williams was this sense. There's a scene in the movie and, and it happened in life where an uh, interviewer is, is poking at Venus Williams, being confident that she can win mm -hmm. this, this match against the champion player. And she's like, you're really confident. Why, why are you so confident? And he's like, you let that alone. Richard Williams comes in and, and defends Venus. And she's like, she said you're confident. She's confident. You leave that alone. She's a young yeah. black girl, blah, blah, blah. So when Will said he played that, he recognized that he saw the look on Venus's face in that interview, knowing that she had a lion who was there to protect her. And Will Smith's dad was very, very violent and was a lion to his family, mm -hmm. attacked his family. But Richard Williams was a lion for his family. And so Will admitted that he took that home and recognized that he wanted to be a lion for his family. Now, seems wonderful and fun. People are communicating that Richard Williams theoretically would not have physically attacked somebody. But here's the difference. Will is in 
the mode of being at that award show to celebrate his playing of this particular character. This is the most important thing he's taken home about this character is showing up and protecting his family. But Will has a core wounding of being a coward because he did not protect his mother when he was nine and she was being attacked. And he says in that instance, he, his brother and sister all made three distinct choices in that instance hmm. that shaped their entire personality. So wow. when you take the theory of the belief and value of being a lion for your family, and you put that on top of a core wounding of being a coward, you're going to get a completely different result than that belief when it lives in the body of Richard Williams, right? That's so deep. The contrast of what it means in that moment to look at his wife, he's firstly laughing at the joke because that's his strategy for survival, keeping everybody happy and jovial and looking like we're all having a good time. He's literally an MC. He trained himself as the guy at the party because that's where hip hop starts. He trained himself as being the one that keeps the party lively. He yeah. became one of the biggest movie stars because he went out at all of his premieres all over the world and created a massive party to get more hype in every city. That's part of how he was able to, to make him. So that like hype man thing that keeping everybody happy yeah. is so part of his, that's why his first instinct was to laugh too. And then he looks over, sees she's unhappy and then it triggers this new belief, this new behavior, be a lion for your family. Yeah. Don't be a coward. And I love that just now I remember that cowardly lion exists. Mm. <laughs> I forgot about that. It's not in his, it's not in his worldview. He never mentions the cowardly lion, but man, that mm. just popped out as I was talking about it. But think about it. Mm. If your core belief is that you're a coward and you're trying to show up new and different, and you've just learned the value of protecting your family, mm. it almost makes the combo of trauma and new, new value system inevitable that he would get up and yeah. do something. You know, and that's the thing I think that really got me also when I was reflecting for myself is that I've been in his shoes. Mm -hmm. I've gotten up to protect mm -hmm. other people. Yes. I've been fierce for other people. Especially other people, right? Yes. Yeah. And has it worked out? Honestly, many times I've embarrassed myself. Yeah. So I think it's really beautiful the next step for the healing around this conversation is what you've been getting at all along, which is um, these are my words, not yours. I'm paraphrasing, but just that deeper conversation around, okay, if we recognize the trauma, if we recognize the control dramas that we've experienced from other people or in ourselves, if we recognize that trauma, how do we be a lion for ourselves? How do we be a lion for the people in our lives in a way that is also productive that doesn't cause shame for us. Yeah. Well, I think it also has to do, this is also part of the cultural construct that recognizing the space that you're in. Um, I absolutely got people to stop hitting me with sticks and throwing rocks at me or punching me or chasing me down because I punched those, those kids because I knock their asses down in the middle of, of soccer or basketball. Like for me to say that it's an inappropriate response mm -hmm. to be violent, for anyone to say, like we know culturally that, that a lot of times guys will fight each other and then they'll be best friends. That that's how they earned respect. So that is a core <laughs> tenet of, of much of our uh, society, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, let them fight it out and then they'll be buddies later. And then to say that it's never appropriate to have violence. There, there are they're absolutely different instances where it makes sense to fight back. Mm. And yes, in a fancy dressed situation, slapping someone is not an appropriate thing. Mm. The response to what was going on was bigger. Almost always if the response, when we're embarrassed, it's that the response is bigger than what is actually happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. That's when we know we have baggage. I, I talk about this, like when you drop a plate in the kitchen, it breaks and you're like, oh my God, I don't deserve to live. And oh, I never do anything right. Like that is then an extreme response to what's actually happening. And that knows, that's how you know that there's like baggage there and not integrity. Yeah. But if you're in an environment where it's safe to be slow, 
and be thoughtful and to calm your nervous system down. Like the different situations call for different things. This is something that people who are trained in martial arts, they actually specifically train their bodies for the range of experiences. You, you, you do learn defense, you do learn offense in attack, but then you also learn the martial art of breathing, meditating, putting your body into stressful situations and then, then training yourself that you're safe. Mm. Recognizing and teaching your unconscious mind to calm down if you're if somebody's punching you. There are moments where there are energetically appropriate mm -hmm. responses to have in the situation. And the thing that we need to cultivate mm -hmm. is behavioral flexibility, practicing co-regulation yes. of our nervous systems with other people in a therapeutic setting, mm -hmm. uh, getting aware of what our traumas are. Mm -hmm. the, I think my favorite troll comment was everybody needs to go to therapy. And I was like, yes, we all need to go to therapy. And they were trying to meet it in this snarky way. And I was like, that's what I'm saying. Therapy and healing is, is available to us and absolutely necessary. Mm. And there's so many paths to that. There's body-based somatic processes, there's somatic experiences, there's trauma release exercises, there's hypnosis, there's meditation, there's conversational stuff. Um, oh, I love doing, uh, what is it, using theater exercises to expand our abilities. Like people could go take acting classes and improv classes and shift their responses to things and shift who they're being and stretch their way of emoting mm. and being in their body and noticing their feelings and utilizing them. Mm. Yeah, there's so many paths to having different levels of emotional agility yeah. in situations. Yeah. And then just to speak to the financial part, because the accessibility is really an issue for a lot of folks, especially when there's, you know, this two year pandemic and there's a, a, a really a shortage of therapeutic practices for the need around the world. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I have really taken up is there are a lot of amazing free workshops online that people can take. Sometimes they're five days long or a week long, you know, in fact, you talking about self-regulation and even co-regulation, which is a whole other thing, you know, that is something I learned about last year through a free workshop through Isabel Tierney. And so mm -hmm. I love that you're talking about, um, you know, the four F's, the fight, flight, freeze, or fawning trauma responses and learning about that fourth fawning response was really huge for me. And you don't know this about me because we just are meeting each other, but I was studying to be a therapist. And even with all of that, I didn't really have a deep enough understanding about that appeasement response that we can have. And so I think also that's why this whole um, experience with the Oscars really spoke to me because I really saw that the personal regulation, you know, was it was such an opportunity for us to look at regulation, mm -hmm. you know, from a societal standpoint. And then you know, I actually want to speak to something else because you spoke about cognitive dissonance and right. that's a wonderful word. Um, when I was living in Oakland a number of years ago, I took a really, really powerful course um, in which I learned more about that word cognitive dissonance. And there's a couple of experiences that come up with this Oscars issue yeah. around cognitive dissonance. And I was curious if you could kind of give folks a definition <laughs> I'm sorry to like Google Adrian here. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do I have the ability to do that? Maybe we can help, you know, come up with it together. Cause um, to me, cognitive dissonance was really interesting in the context of racism and privilege, right? you know, because we have folks saying things like, um, okay, let's say for an environment, let's mm -hmm. say there's cognitive dissonance for the environment. I think in the 90s, 80% um, of Americans considered themselves an environmentalist. Okay. But then you have like 100% of adult Americans that drive cars, et cetera. You know, and so there's this cognitive dissonance of like, I think I'm a good person, but I'm actually still contributing to the degradation of, you know, the environment. So yeah, my, my lived example is so my grandparents that I knew more, uh, very racist, they were working class in a very wealthy white neighborhood or mostly white neighborhood. And they loved me deeply. And I was like eight shades darker back then because I was outside all of the time. And my grandmother would try to like race me to tan 
And sadly, that led to a lot of skin cancer issues when she was older. She was trying to get darker than me. But um, they would love me deeply, but then say absolutely horrible racist things to other people that we would see. And just being able to like to not recognize that I was just as much like the people that they but they but I was in this different box in their brain. I was in family box and these other people were Negroes. Mm. And apparently I wasn't them. And and it's partly why I'm saying things like recognizing that sometimes we need to transmute love and recognize that connection can happen. It's almost like so. So there's the gentleman who befriended a lot of the Ku Klux Klan leaders, the the black gentleman. I'm not remembering his name right now, but they would absolutely go to their rallies with this guy. And then talking about the white race and how important they thought it was. And then go to dinner with this black man because that was their friend. But they still had their beliefs about black people being lesser than. Mm. Um, and it took him over time for that, that friendship to permeate those other places in their brains, the contextual places in their brains to recognize, wait a second, I no longer believe this anymore. Mm. Our ability to to have that level of contradiction and blind spots. Mm. And I think it's really fascinating because I've even been friends with people who will say horrifying things about other people, even though those other people, like I, ha- I will have qualities of those other people, but they're like, oh no, but you, I love you, but these people, they're awful. And I was like, well, just, but, uh, <laughs> and certainly that's not what I mean when I say holding multiple realities at one time mm. and the importance of being able to take in as many divergent thoughts and and sometimes contradictory expressions, being able to expand our capacity to understand and appreciate more perspectives mm-hmm. is really valuable. But I think that's the integrated version. Cognitive dissonance to me lends towards disintegration, that there are parts of the unconscious that aren't in conversation with each other, mm-hmm. like separate separate you know you change you change your hat and then you can't see you know like like when you're being a creative musician and writing something that is a different hat than when you're listening back to your to your demos with a with an ear for quality those those two brains might be separate yeah listening to is is pitch on are we on time what's happening here that that we can have separate aspects of ourselves that aren't integrated yeah it's like an incoherency to me you Mm -hmm. know it's like your actions are saying one thing and your thought process is dictating another thing and your values are saying another thing. Yeah. You know, it just brings me back to the importance of what you were getting at earlier is that there are opportunities in moments where we feel brave or where we feel strong or we feel resourced. There are opportunities for us to deepen conversations with each other and deepen conversations I do understand there are some problematic scenarios for that. You know, I just feel very protective of folks that might be overextending themselves in order to heal race relations, for example, you know, and so I just, I want to say this very carefully and I feel like you already have, so I don't want to reiterate it, but you're really inspiring me even further to attempt some conversations with people because I have canceled people, Mm -hmm. you know, I have written people off because I'm like, they're just a bigot. I can't, I can't with them, you know? Um, But as an ally, I do feel a responsibility to speak to certain audiences that could benefit greatly from, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, from expanding their value systems to, you know, to being inclusive and to being more connected to all people, you know? Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. So right now we're in a a phase of the world where we all have platforms where we can, you know, it seems like everybody's got their own megaphone and Facebook and Twitter and that sort of thing. And everybody's like, screaming out the thing to strangers or maybe friends. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I hadn't spoken out publicly about about things that I see and believe is because it's far more effective for me to have a private conversation and a connected conversation with someone I feel safe to show my heart and speak to mm-hmm. who is inspired to go out and talk to more people. Mm-hmm. That 
that I, I think it's very powerful to take on the revolution of healing the things you see in the world in yourself first, mm-hmm. and then find the people you're most connected to and shift together. Yeah. That you have the ability, because one of the things that's important for change to take place, and I was talking about this earlier, is the emotional significance. The times where we've changed our lives, changed our minds, or changed somebody else's mind, there's been emotional relevance and emotional significance to us. Mm -hmm. It's possible for strangers to help people change each other's minds. And those people have greater agility in their communication to be able to speak in a way that people can follow what they're saying Mm -hmm. and, and have it work. And you, anyone listening and you have the greatest chance of being able to influence somebody who already gives a fuck about you. Mm. They're already invested and they already care. It's, it's personally relevant to them. People, mm. God love us. And especially when we're scared, we get very self-involved and we only live our lives through our own perspective. So in order to make an impact, it's got to be emotionally and personally relevant to them Mm -hmm. for them to want to change or be inspired to change. And occasionally that means, hey, I'm going to inspire this person to change by not talking to them anymore and telling them why. Mm -hmm. That's going to be personally relevant. Disconnecting is not necessarily the wrong choice. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if you have the ability to show up in connection with somebody, see them for who they really are, see their heart, and then share new information, they're going to be more inclined to listen and consider it. Beautiful. It's beautiful. And you know, as you're saying all this, you're allowing me, so I'm grateful to to you for this. You're allowing me to reach deeper into the heart of why I started this podcast is because these kind of conversations that I'm having one-on-one are so beautiful and so inspiring to me that I'm hopeful that those that are listening will feel inspired as well. So it is like a one-on-one conversation where we're both, you know, upping the ante. We're both, hopefully you feel this way as well. I can't control that, but hopefully (laughs) it feels inspiring to you as well. But to know that other people can benefit from this conversation actually brings it out even further than the learning that you and I can have in this. Yeah. I think we're absolutely modeling what connection could look like and what it looks like to be curious about people and jump into conversations. And that's important. I think (sighs) this is my own spin. This is, this is the If I had a soapbox, this is probably what I would get up and say. So as a business person, (laughs) I am deeply aware that the racism that exists in the United States was a ridiculously useful value proposition for a business model. And in order to keep it going, they had to also create whiteness. And so a lot of people lost their cultures because of that. Mm -hmm. And they traded it for whiteness. So there, there are people here who are completely disconnected from their culture and from their lineage. And they were handed this, what is it? Whiteness. And it just, and then told that they were special because, because wealthy people were terrified of the paradigm changing. And for black people and probably a lot of Irish people at the time to rise up. So they came up with this really great idea. Originally they came up with, oh my gosh, these people are super dark. We can find them if they run away. Brilliant for the industry. And then they're like, oh my gosh, all of these people are getting rights and the poor people are going to rise up and take over and we're not going to be able to keep our stuff. So let's create whiteness. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And so we evolve it forward, trying to figure out wealthy people trying to keep us fighting each other and distracted. And what I've noticed in the conversations around race and anti-racism work, and I swear I am not trained in any of it. This Mm -hmm. is not my work, not my job. What's interesting to me is that if you're energetically, if we're combating racism with anti-racism, we're still in racism mode. Mm -hmm. And I am still looking for the people who are describing where we actually want to go. I was just talking to somebody the Mm -hmm. other day, uh, a potential client who's coming in and saying that, that, that she was feeling indecisive in her business and very, very stuck and frustrated. And then I asked her what it would look like if all of that was changed and better. And she could not tell me the words that equaled, like you might think she'd say freedom. But when it, when I asked her what it looks like to have a better relationship with your business and flow in your business, she was like, not bogged down, not trapped, not stuck. It's the same energy. Mm-hmm. There's There was no freedom, clarity, and all these other things. And if we're 
still fighting each other at the same level, mm-hmm. then when are we going to shift? How are we going to shift away from this super functional, keeping us fighting each other for scraps? The system is still working as it was designed to, mm-hmm. arguing over language we're supposed to use. How do we get our own freedom? How do we get our own full expression of ourselves if we're still fighting each other for scraps? Who has the language to describe something different and better that's not in the same container? Racism and anti-racism, they're fighting the same at the same energetic level. Mm. Where's the language of freedom? Where's the language of deeply loving and and I know that sounds freaking simplistic. I'm just saying no one is pointing us in some different direction. There's no language being created mm-hmm. to describe what maybe Star Trek, I haven't watched it, but I hear it's theoretically a utopian society that's already figured out the stuff we're still reckoning with, right? Mm. What does that conversation look like? Show up in curiosity and honor the weird wiggly weirdness of everyone? That's the closest I can get to. How are you wonderful and weird? Let's figure it out. Let's play around with it. What can we do with our oddness? It might be percolating in TikTok world where everybody's beginning to celebrate different neurodiversity, get thrilled about their weirdness and own it. It might be starting. And I don't have the gosh darn answer Mm. to that. Mm. But I think about it when people ask about how to be an ally and how to engage in these conversations. I think it's important in healing to meet somebody and honor their trauma hold it and feel it. And I'm like, yes, we see you. This hurt. It's real. It's happened. And I don't know how we turn the bus towards something that gives more freedom for all of us. Right. Beyond trauma and into, into bliss. Yeah. Also caging language. Language is absolutely important. And Mm. I'm looking for the resourceful book of language that if we all begin pointing in the direction of what we actually want instead of chipping away at all this don't want. Mm. And I don't know what it is. And I don't know who's cultivating it or creating it, but that's yeah. keeping my eyes and ears out for it. I do have some ideas of some folks that I feel like are, are moving in that direction. Um, Isabel Tierney comes to mind. She's one of my mentors. I've been working with her for a year. Um, Carolyn Mace, she has some problematic things that she said about HIV. So I just want to speak to that, but she's a medical intuitive that really speaks about the importance of moving beyond trauma and moving into, um, the energetics Mm -hmm. of, um, beyond homo sapien to homo noetics, which is a really interesting theory, right? From matter based to energy based and yeah, it's it's sort of it sounds privileged. It sounds sort of in that sort of uh, spiritual bypassing place. It's like, oh, let's just be like energetic harmony. It reminds me of the contrast of the hierarchy of needs. There are people who who aren't made as safe as other people. There's some people who have a safer, better time at this point. Mm-hmm. So it takes evolving everyone upward and it probably takes everybody working at all of the levels. But I'm also freaking curious when I think of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs now recognizing that the triangle's upside down Mm -hmm. and it was a misappropriation of a, of a native culture's philosophy and that community was the thing that was needed. Yes. Recognizing that many of us can get into this, like focusing on freedom and energetic. If you've got the safety and food and the structure and all that to be more actualized and do your emotional work. And, and heal your trauma. Like you just kind of got to get out of survival. But it turns out, and I haven't studied it, but it turns out the misinterpretation is that bottom level included community. Yes. And potentially that the difference is if we build communities, we don't have to suddenly be as actualized because we're sharing the labor. Yes. And we're, we're regulating with each other, which is how we're designed anyway. Self-regulation is kind of a myth. There's things we can do, but co-regulation is so, so much faster. Isn't that beautiful? So co-regulation, that's another leader in this. Um, Ray Castellino, he speaks very eloquently. Um, he he uh, co-founded the Beba Clinic, B-E-B-A, in Southern mm-hmm. California. There's They have two clinics, one in Ojai and one somewhere near there in, in, in uh, maybe Santa Barbara. And he speaks about the importance of co-regulation and it's kind of tying back to the earlier conversation around the importance of feeling like you're part of a community where you protect each other. And then there's a whole conversation, of course, around who is considered other 
Right. Because that's really important because that's where things can get very dangerous and sticky around things like racism, you know, and sexism, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot we can say at once here, but yeah, it sounds like you have some things to share there too. Yeah. I think I'm empty. I think I did it. Okay. okay. Awesome. <laughs> I think my brain's out of stuff unless, unless you have specific questions. <laughs> uh, no, you know, the only other thing that I felt that, um, you know, I don't want to belabor this too much, but going back to a couple of the cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. issues that I have seen in response to the Oscars, we don't have to take much time on it, but just wanted to point out, you know, to me, I'm just going to say it out loud. To me, the banning of Will Smith for 10 years from the Academy Awards community is such overkill. When you look at things like Henry Weinstein, you know, you and you look at his horrible behavior, his illness and his violence in the community and repeated violence in the community. And you, you I'm speaking about Henry Weinstein right now. It's just to me, that's such a huge cognitive dissonance that that's being spoken about not enough in my opinion. Yeah. And, and then there's the, there's another, there's another quick point I wanted to yeah. make too, yeah. but I just wanted you to have an opportunity to speak on that. I actually think that, so 10 years seems excessive potentially, but I actually think that that is more likely an energetic response to how beloved Will Smith was in this particular community. I think, I think part of the thing is that, um, I mean, he was one of the most, I don't know, I think his movies have grossed the most alone. Maybe Tom Cruise is in the conversation too, but Will Smith is one of the most beloved mm-hmm. actors and superstars, Hollywood superstars around. And he cultivated the image of joy. He cultivated his, he, <laughs> he was given flack for not being gangster and didn't cuss. And his wholesome image that he built over decades, mm-hmm. I think that it has more to do with who he told us he was and everybody keeping him on that pedestal and expecting him, him, him going around and keeping everybody happy and laughing and playful, that, that it's, it's, a, it's a response to the level of disappointment of flipping that story and what we assumed was mm. there. Mm. Um, because he just didn't show any cracks in his personality before this moment. And I think that this has a bit more to do with that particular level of people feeling the rug being pulled out, mm. not knowing the odds are that some somebody to be able to be that charismatic and that much of a magician of playful energy at that level has to have likely some trauma. I mean, we've seen Jim Carrey's cracks over his career come out a bit more than, than Will has, but Will surrounded himself with love and a team to sort of take on some of that for him. Mm-hmm. So I just get a sense that it has a lot more to do with the Academy taking that personally. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are taking that switch personally, mm-hmm. that they're just so surprised mm-hmm. that are, they're happy, joyful, jolly Will, who has shifted in these last years to being definitely very inspiring too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm feeling. And it's... Mm-hmm. And it's gross. It's absolutely gross. The Weinsteins and the other people, what they had done is like horrifying, but they weren't humans that we brought into our hearts and projected so much of our joy and reverence. Mm. And the guy, like, yeah, I think it's just, it's just a different type of disappointment and heartbreak that we're feeling about this, which makes it inspiring such a harsher punishment, I think. Does that make sense? I don't know that I talked I mean, just Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I do. Um, the other thing I wanted to address um, in terms of, I don't know if cognitive dissonance is the right word for it, but it's been really frustrating for me to hear people responding to what Jada and Will are 
um, identifying as an open relationship. And that mm-hmm. to me is a decision between two consensual adults, that that's how they want to define their relationship. Mm-hmm. I've been really frustrated with folks naming that as infidelities. Right. And, and not in the same turn, naming Chris Rock's infidelities, which mm. have been public, you know, and to be honest, I don't really care what people's personal sexual relationship is, but I personally have learned a lot by listening to the conversations that Jada and Will have had very openly and very bravely, in my opinion, around their relationship and the the growth that they were able to experience and the um, true connection that I witness coming out mm-hmm. of that. And so that's just the other piece that I felt. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think we're, again, we're all bringing our own personal lenses to the situation. Yeah. I will say that I've been paying attention because again, I'd, I'd heard rumors and inklings uh, 15, 17 years ago about what their relationship structure was. And, and then I'd been very sad. I get very sad knowing that there are so many open relationships and polyamorous relationships and creative communities and especially Hollywood on screen, off screen, backstage that like the numbers of people in creative industries who are in open, it's like a lot more humans that are in open relationships and polyamorous relationships. But here's this industry that's specifically selling monogamy. And it's very disappointing to me Mm -hmm. knowing that so many of the people who are making this art aren't sharing their own stories. So from my own perspective and my own sense of baggage, I have been paying attention to the language that they've been using to talk about the relationship. And they are not, they're being very vague and unspecific in their language to describe, we're all calling their relationship an open relationship. And Jada called that thing an entanglement in their relationship. And Will has said in his book, like there's one sentence that our, our relationship has freedom in it. And he says something about monogamy isn't for everyone, but they haven't specifically said we are in an open relationship and we have an open relationship. And even uh, the Red Table Talk, Willow is polyamorous and was open about it. And Jada's like being weird about it. Like she doesn't even understand it. So they're not, there's no clarity. Got it. And I think people can only meet you at the energy that you are putting out there, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're, <laughs> it's like cleaning up the signal. You can only put a microphone on a clear signal and have it come out clearly. And they, I think a lot of the confusion and, and challenge around that is that they are not actually clear about whether this was an infidelity. It's also none of our business, but still, right. Right. if we're putting them on, on a pedestal, which is totally traumatic and alienating, by the way. Uh, we don't talk about that trauma much right. ever. Just shunning people is just as traumatic as like putting people on a pedestal. They're both equally alienating. So we've distanced them and put them in on pedestal. And so your relationship's like the most epic and you make the best beautiful children. And yeah, they're disconnected. Both, yeah. both are disconnected. So know? I think it's a weird thing to be in an industry where people are projecting so much of their stuff at you and expecting you to be something. to and for them. And it's maybe part of the agreement that some people take on of how they engage. And talking about infidelity, I think it's just that there's just so much confusion about that area of their lives. Mm -hmm. If they were clearly articulating the structure of their relationship in the terms that we understand it, Mm -hmm. it's like, we're not even in the paradigm of infidelities existing. That's not what I've seen. And I've I've like fine tooth combed it. Like I've looked into it and I, ah, I'm not surprised by, I mean, we can even think, is the world ready for powerful black people to be polyamorous and open? Mm. Are we ready to have a lot more famous people who we've idealized and we're selling magazines and the TV shows that only talk about celebrity. We're selling weddings and monogamy and the the structure and that's selling the movies that are selling that too. Like this whole, there's a lot of money in perpetuating what will eventually sell diamonds and weddings and this other thing. And I don't know, is there money in open relationships and polyamory? Will the media allow people to share that? Do they have? Yeah, maybe there are more diamonds in polyamory. I don't know. You might think, 
more often that you're having weddings. I, I don't know, but there's just a lot of people who are invested in Will's story and what they need it to be to sell the movies and to sell what other things are being endorsed. There's just, there are a lot of fingers in that pot and there's a lot of emotional relevance that we've given them yeah. for our own lives. It's fascinating, isn't it? How yeah. invested we all are in this conversation. And I know there are people that are not and that's okay. Yeah. But I'm hoping, I'm kind of curious if there's, if there's anyone that listens to this, that we're like, wow, I was not interested in this conversation at all before, but I actually learned some things today, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I recognized my initial response. I was grumpified because I really had, I had an idea back in December to do a Will Smith specific episode on enlightened couch potato and we've been on hiatus and I've just been holding on to it. I wanted to look at it. I wanted to look at the book and I wanted to do the YouTube show. And then this incident made that so complicated. And I am working on a project to teach people how to install beliefs and look at valuable beliefs and, and then audition them in their own bodies and, and anticipate what the shadow aspects of those beliefs are. So I was like, I'd had him on my mind when this happened. And I'm like, oh man, this is going to make the episode so complicated. It's going to make the workshop on beliefs because I was going to utilize, we can see Will's core beliefs and what his traumas are and how that works. And remember, if you want to install someone's beliefs, here's what's important to be paying attention to. But, but just recognizing like I was invested in his story in this moment. And I'm like, now when I'm thinking about how am I going to take care of my audience, now I have to do all of this extra labor when and, and if I choose to do that episode now, I have to address all of the possible takes where before Will Smith was super easy. Will Smith was successful and lovely and fun. And if you want to have his results, then maybe follow, like find a way to install his beliefs, right? That was clean and simple because we knew we could just dip the thermometer in and test the audience and read the room. And the room was just one temperature. Everybody fucking loved him. And now like, that's so selfish. I know. <laughs> He messed up my show. (laughs) You know, you could just title it that. Will Smith fucked up this episode. I will. I will. (laughs) Will, if you or anyone you know are listening, we're saying that with love. But, you know, uh, you know, it reminds me to a little earlier. We had both said, you know, how we hadn't really considered the impact for Chris. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me, I othered Chris Rock. I kind of wrote him off. Yeah. You know, and, but he actually did respond really pretty elegantly. Yeah. You know, yeah. I wonder what, I wonder what his response would have been if that was behind stage. I think there's a different access as performers to get ourselves into to the state to be on stage. Mm-hmm. I think the MC part of him did take over in that freeze moment. Yeah. Uh, Cause that's, that's his comfort zone is yeah. being on stage. And yeah. I, yeah, I, I didn't spend time getting into to Chris's space because it's he's not his comedy's not been one of my favorites. Um it's straight up the only Chris Rock joke that I know is I'll never hit a woman. I would never hit a woman, but I will shake the shit out of her. Was is the only joke I know of his, and that's like decades old. Mm. So I, I was more behind the idea that maybe comedy needs to have a reckoning. Maybe it's we're long overdue for recognizing the role. Like comedy has been great for pointing ourselves out to us, right? Uh-huh. Comedy has been very provocative and told us the truth and, and hold up a mirror in a way that we can laugh, but also be triggered to think differently. And it's powerful. Humor is yeah. powerful and they can cut and bite through a lot of the noise and we can still ele- elevate the craft Yes. Such that we're not purposely trying to attack anybody. Yeah. Or even ourselves. There's some people who are even shifting the level of the lens of comedy of making sure that they're not the butts of their own joke. Right. That we can still be commenting on and being provocative and evoking a sense of possibility and change in humanity in a funny way. And we can still be raunchy as hell yeah. and still with a different level of humanity. I have a friend that's a comedian. He's hilarious as fuck. Alex Falcone. And I, he's both somehow wholesome, raunchy, and he doesn't attack himself and he doesn't attack anybody else. And it's, oh. it's such a level of craft. Like I think funny should also include craft and skill and intelligence. And I don't know. I think we're ready for that. I think we're ready for a different style of comedy. 
even still other people like TikTok influencers that look at entertainment. They've also like this incident wasn't the only thing that missed the mark at the Oscars. Like most of the humor was weird and gross mm. and inappropriate. And I don't know why the Academy just decided. I don't know why they took the stance that what we need to do is show up and make fun of the people who make movies. Like it used to be that the award show was full of people celebrating all of the parts of movie making. Mm. The people behind the scenes that are in the credits that a lot of people walk out of the movies before they see them. It used to be a giant celebration of this art form. Mm. And why can't we just fucking love movies and the people who make them? Mm. Why can't we just be in celebration? Because I love movies. It's my favorite things why can't we just like stuff when did we get back into the like the snarky above it all everything's stupid and let's make fun of ourselves that's like 90s asshole humor like why why are we going back there why can't we just be in love with the art form and celebrate each other yeah why is it's become very like roast culture in comedy and it's like joke hungry you know it's like we asked earlier like why did chris rock think that that joke about jada's hair would even be appropriate or funny it's like such a hunger for the joke that it's not even it's disconnected again that word comes up again there's an incoherency mm-hmm. i think that that's where criticism can, really comes in is when people are recognizing that there's an incoherency here yeah so yeah and then Tiffany Haddish is is another comedian that comes to mind as somebody that is really um, just telling her story in such a beautiful way and such humor and such love for her family, you know? And so I just want to honor her as well. And so Alex Falcone is the name of your friend. Oh yeah, he's a he's a hilarious, hilarious comedian. And he's he's weirdly able to be both kind of raunchy and provocative, but also wholesome. It's the Funniest, wonderful thing. Uh, he, he was originally from Portland, I think, and he's in L.A. now. Mm. He's, he's got stuff on TikTok and yeah. his own website. Just- That's awesome. You know, my friend Dan Curtis actually comes to mind. He's in Colorado and he's so funny. His, his act is about like his family and like the funny things that they say, like as, as a white family. And he's like, you know, he does this funny bit where he's like, my mom, she's like, I'm like, mom, your, your doctor said you're dehydrated. Like, why don't you drink more water? She's like, water. I don't care for it. It's like, but he, he says it in this way that it's just like, what do you mean? You don't like water. It's like an element that you need in your body. Like, I don't care for it. I just don't care for it, you know? Um, But yeah, I love the idea of, you know, we can have conversations and still be funny. We can still have humor in it, but we can elevate our humor. And, you know, going back to your workshop, what a beautiful opportunity to infuse even more levels of depth there and Mm -hmm. our shadow side, Yep. you know? I I think shadow's one of those like, deeper level when you get into like therapy world, Jungian stuff. Mm. You know, I don't know if you learn about the shadow in therapy before or after you recognize that there's nothing wrong with you. I think Mm. one of the biggest learnings in therapy is you go in and you pay somebody money because there's something wrong with you. And then when it's going really well, you realize, wait a second, I'm starting to believe there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. And then somewhere after that, you look at your shadow, which is essentially we pour our fingers at things that we're sure is not us. I am not that thing. And our unconscious minds and bodies are always working towards wholeness and integration. And what ends up happening is when you point out qualities in another person, it's like, oh, I'm not like that person. They're just too petty. They're na 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 right? Our unconscious mind will elevate and bring to the forefront those aspects that actually are in us. Uh, so we often will become our shadows when we are distancing ourselves and when we're not, and it's like, oh, that's a thing you don't like. Let's show you that aspect of that lives inside you right now. And so you're going to start sounding and feeling like the thing you think you hate and you're not until you heal it and integrate it. Um, I think about often around the conversations of toxic masculinity is where it pops up to me most, where I don't know if people recognize when they're talking about healing toxic masculine in our culture, whether they start with healing it in themselves first, because that's the fastest path to recognizing. Like you can't wash it out of other humans unless you clean it up in your own life. 
And then there are also just the idea that there are shadow aspects to everything, much like someone who is so charismatic, like a Will Smith, built and structured. He, he built that aspect of his personality mm. to protect something. Mm. And um, some people with insane work ethic may have a sense of that they don't feel worthy. There are things that look positive. There are beliefs that seem positive at the surface. But sometimes over time in different situations, they could be corrosive or they could be maladaptive. Things that even seem positive at the surface, there could be darker shadowy aspects of any positive seeming belief or value.